0: This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio,
1: Calgary's breaking news and conversation station.
0: Looking forward to this conversation. Uh, We just spoke with Christy Blanchford not too long ago. She was uh, in town covering uh, the Justice Robin Camp hearing and whether he's going to continue to be a judge. But uh, she's someone who has covered the court system for a very long time. And she's come to some interesting conclusions, which are laid out uh, in a new book she's released. It's called Life Sentence, Stories from Four Decades of Court Reporting or How I Fell Out of Love with the Canadian Justice System. Christy Blatchford joins us on the line here this afternoon. Hi there, Christy.
1: Hi, Rob.
0: Great to have you with us. Appreciate you making some time for us here today. So, yeah, look, as you point out, I mean, you've been covering the courts in this country for for almost 40 years, which is uh, quite a long time.
1: (laughs) Frightening length of time.
0: Um, So this is in part, I suppose a memoir about cases you've covered, the impact they've had on you. But it is, as you allude to in in the title, kind of a a revelation on your part. You've come to a different way of of viewing the system.
1: Yeah, I think in the beginning and certainly for probably the first 20 years I covered the criminal courts, um, I was pretty deferential. I mean, I'm deferential probably to authority uh, by dint of my background you know I b- believe in the institutions of the country and that sort of thing and I really enjoyed the kind of uh, you know staid old decorum that accompanies the courts uh, you know you stand when the judge comes in and you know god forbid your cell phone should ring in court all those kinds of things um, but over the more recent uh, 20 years that I've been covering the courts I've become increasingly impatient uh, not so much just with the decorum but with you know some of the deference that's required for judges and you know we've all seen uh, particularly recently in calgary we've seen that judges can make very human and very ordinary mistakes and uh, what i really wonder is how in an age of increasing demands for transparency the judiciary has managed to escape that entire sort of uh new way of looking at things. People want their institutions to be more responsible, more responsive to them. Everybody demands accountability. You know, think about it, from churches. You, you just mentioned in your your uh, introduction to me, you were talking about uh, the Alberta government, which wants uh, these religious schools to uh, bend to the government will, and everyone gets involved, of course, because of social media. So there's more accountability demanded of churches, of the education system, of government, of bureaucracy, certainly of the police. Uh, I mean, in more and more jurisdictions, police are either carrying, wearing body cameras or the police boards are thinking of having them do it. Um, And yet almost nobody ever asks those kinds of questions about the judges.
0: Well, yeah, you're right about, I think, or changing perspective. And we just had, even just last week in Edmonton, uh, a very high-profile murder trial, and a judge apparently make a, a colossal error in law that we've come to think of these people as infallible, maybe in a way because we need them to be, but clearly they're not.
1: Yeah, clearly they're not. I felt very badly, actually, for the judge in that case. That was the Travis Vader uh, verdict, yeah. Yeah. of course. And there he was, for once, t- trying to accommodate the huge public interest in that case and the demands of the, the press, uh, who are of course the public's representative most of the time in courts, to bring cameras into the courtroom. So he does it, and of course Murphy's Law being what it is, it blows up in his face in the biggest way because he he applies a section of the criminal code in reaching his verdict, which was struck down as unconstitutional 20 years ago, but this being Canada, nonetheless still appears in the criminal code itself. I mean, it's insane when you think about it. It's inviting mistakes.
0: Well, at the same time, though, I mean, how much are judges to blame? Uh, Because I think on something like that, we can put a lot of blame on on the politicians and and their reluctance to to tackle these issues. Uh, You know, you you write in the book about the Gomeshi trial, and that was a big one for you. Uh, There were a lot of outside pressures on the justice system. And and so it seems though there's a lot of blame to go around.
1: Yeah, I think there is. But uh, the one place I don't think there's a lot of blame uh, really is uh, on the the public coming and and to be honest, even on the press, because they've been talking, for instance, in the Ontario courts about bringing cameras into the courtroom for at least 25 years yeah. as a sort of active, perpetual discussion. And, of course, nothing's changed. Nothing happens. There's no political will. What most people probably don't realize is that there aren't working microphones in most of the courtrooms in this country. And if you're a journalist and your task is to accurately report what witnesses and lawyers are saying to one another, it's very tricky when you can't hear them. And there's no transcripts available, of course, not in any kind of contemporaneous way. So um, there's been a, a long-standing demand for more openness, at least in terms of getting television cameras into courtrooms for a long, long time in this country. And absolutely nothing has changed. I mean, the only place you have cameras is at the Supreme Court. And on the rare sort of you know, uh, benevolent, benevolence of uh, an individual judge here and there as with this judge last week who then had it blow up in his face.
0: Well, on the point so, about cameras in the courtroom though, do you like the idea?
1: Yeah, I do. It won't affect me in the slightest. I mean, television, uh, I, I, I think it won't make it harder or more difficult or, any of that for print journalists to do our job. What it will do though, is allow people who are interested in the justice system. And it's important, I mean, people go to jail, they lose their liberty. This is really the main part of the court system where that happens. So there's always a tremendous amount at stake. And I think there are a lot of people who would, would watch certain trials, not all trials, but would watch certain ones. So I think, you know what, I, I think it would be a tremendous first step to opening up the, the courts to the sort of scrutiny that every other institution in our world is is expected to to conform with now.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk about the Gameshi trial then, because people hold that up as an example of a sensational trial. I, obviously, there was enough interest in it already, even without cameras in the courtroom. And there's also the question about, you know, should we be allowed to show certain people and protecting people's identities? But that case was a weird one in in a lot of ways what about that case though stood out to you and, and changed your perspective on the justice system
1: well i'm probably the only person in the country and i'm certainly i think the only person who covered the trial who felt um that my faith in the justice system was renewed because of the trial i didn't i didn't find it disheartening i i was there for every moment of testimony and evidence and I know that the the defense attorney in this case did not bring up any of the so-called rape myths. She didn't question any of the complainants about their previous sexual history. There was none of that. Rather, they blew themselves up with their own dishonesty and duplicity, frankly. Um, and as a result, uh, because they were deemed not credible, uh, Mr. Gomeshi was committed or <laughs> acquitted right. of... Uh, you know those charges they were the main set of charges and i found that heartening and i found particularly heartening the judge's um decision in the case because he didn't he didn't yield to all the pressures that were being brought to bear on him to even if he was going to acquit there was a lot of pressure to sort of cast some some bones the way of those who are um convinced that women need to be better protected and better prepared. I mean, I think they infantilize women. Uh, That's why I was grateful that he didn't do any of that. He just reached his conclusion. He explained why, and I thought it was a very solid decision. So I have an unusual take on that. I recognize that most people found it terribly disheartening, and women's groups were crushed, and victims and survivors everywhere Linked hands and had kumbaya moments, but I didn't find it that way. I, I thought he treated the women like adults, which they were, um, and I, I thought he treated them with courtesy and humanity, right. and that is all you can ever ask of the judge.
0: Well, and you know, it speaks to the nature of our system where someone is innocent until proven guilty, and it's up to the state to prove their case. And in the Gameshi case, his lawyer did her job uh she's a woman obviously and she was vilified as though she was some kind of traitor to womankind and i guess then by extension you, you wore some of that too christy
1: yeah i guess so uh but it certainly didn't bother marie hannon and it didn't bother me uh nobody likes to get rings of hate mail uh i i grant you that but you know as i say we're all adults in this game and we all have to learn to to take that sort of criticism and uh, Marie Hennan did a fabulous job, um, but she didn't. She didn't get her client off through trickery or lawyerly cunning. She uh, she played by all the rules, all the modern rules of the modern sexual assault trial. She too treated the complainants with uh, respect uh, and with humanity. These are things, the basics that you should expect. But when you reveal yourself to be a liar in the witness stand you're going to be in for a bit of a rough ride. That's what happens. And that those kinds of tests, cross-examination that is vigorous uh, and intense, are the kind of tests you need when you're, when you're trying to determine who's telling the truth and where, where the reasonable doubt lies. Uh, because, you know, Gameshi could have gone to jail for a long time if he had been convicted. I mean, that's the thing people, it seems to me often pay not enough heed to. It, it's, it's a serious business in the criminal courts. When you lose your liberty, you lose everything.
0: All right. So there was a case where the case against the accused was weak, and, and it failed. The, so as you said, I mean, it, it restored some of your confidence in, in the justice system, yeah, maybe not is. enough to talk you out of writing the book.
1: Well, it was the last case I covered as, a, a, as I was sort of wrapping the book up. And it did restore some of my faith, absolutely. And uh, I was grateful for it. I remain grateful for it. Um, But it doesn't uh, diminish, you know, my criticisms aren't of individual judges. In the Gomeshi case, I very much liked the judgment. That isn't the point. The point, rather, is they should all be more accountable, more transparent. We should know more about them. They shouldn't judge themselves. I mean, police... 20 years ago, lost the ability. Uh, you know, if, if I work for the Calgary Police Service and one of my officers kills or injures somebody in some sort of confrontation, the Calgary Police Force doesn't investigate it. Mm-hmm. An outside agency does. Right. But when judges screw up, guess who investigates them? Other judges. Yeah. Well, That's Christi, not fair.
0: Stand by if you can. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back and we'll talk a bit more of this book. And I do want to also touch on the uh, Mike Duffy trial which as much as maybe the Gomeshi trial restored her faith in the justice system, a lot of concern about the Gomeshi trial that she writes about in her book. So We'll touch on that as well. Christy Blatchford, a veteran reporter uh, currently with the National Post, but uh, she's worked for numerous uh, newspapers uh, over the years. Her book is called Life Sentence, Stories from Four Decades of Court Reporting, or How I Fell Out of Love with the Canadian Justice System. We're back with more right after this. Welcome back. Rob Breakenridge. with you in conversation with Christy Blatch for talking about her new book, Life Sentence, uh, stories from four decades of court reporting or how I fell out of love with the Canadian justice system, especially judges, as it uh, adds on there, Christy. So let's talk about the Mike Duffy trial. What about that trial you thought uh, solid your your faith in, in the justice system?
1: well just so people understand at that point i think i'd pretty much given up on finishing this book because the subject is so big and sweeping and i don't think i have the kind of head for it frankly and the book may even show up i don't know um so anyway i'm in ottawa for months and months it in the end it turned out because the case was spread over many time periods and in the first slice of it i guess it was four weeks or six weeks uh because I learned early on that I better uh, keep track of the time myself, I noticed, and well, I didn't notice, I was being driven crazy by the fact that the judge in the case um, never in the first sort of segment of this trial, several weeks at least, had been on time only once. And he was staying, he was from Toronto, and he was staying at the hotel across the street from the courthouse in Ottawa. So I knew he didn't have a big commute in And I made it every day on time. So I would sit like a lunatic in this courtroom, you know, going, tick-tock, tick-tock, where are you, where are you? And ultimately, I wrote about it. And then, by God, uh, suddenly he started showing up on time. But one of those days, when he was late, walking the half block from the hotel, it suddenly occurred to me that here was this uh, white, older, unelected, unaccountable judge passing judgment over guess what another white older unaccountable unelected senator <laughs> yeah. and the, the similarity just blew me away and it was sort of an epiphany for me and i thought i can write this book by god um so i i mean i'm not quarreling with the verdict uh, i almost never quarrel with the verdicts because i think most of the time canadian judges do their best know the law and are pretty pretty damn good but what was galling in that case was just the the, the similarity between the two groups—senators and judges—and judges have certainly more power than senators do, and they earn about twice as much money. I think uh, Mike Duffy at that time was earning 130 grand a year, something like that, or um, when he started, and the judge in question was earning about 260 a year. So it's not a you know it's not a, a low-paid job. It's not a It's not working at McDonald's. And I think for that money, you know, we are owed punctuality, uh, courtesy, humanity, and, you know, knowledge of the law. You know, unlike, say, Robin Camp, who didn't have knowledge of the law.
0: But do you think things were better 30 years ago? I mean, judges were just as unaccountable then, weren't they?
1: Yes. Yes, they were. No, I think things have been exactly the same in Canada for a very long time. And, And that is, I suppose one of the points of me railing about all this stuff is that nothing ever changes. You know, the world has changed tremendously. I, I mean, my industry has changed tremendously. You know, we're now a print journalists basically are being every day replaced by online versions of ourselves. Mm Newspapers are in trouble, et cetera, et cetera. The world is a fast changing place like never before. And yet the judiciary, you know, continues on its merry way, judging itself, uh, opaque, impenetrable to those of us who and remember they're not these guys aren't gods these men and women who are on the bench one day they were a lawyer the next day they're a judge you don't suddenly acquire magisterial qualities because you've got an appointment you know the appointment system itself is flawed as we saw in the camp case robin camp came to canada as a, a young youngish lawyer from south africa in 1998 he was an engineering and construction lawyer he he would not have been in the criminal courtrooms and because he was from outside the country he didn't have any knowledge of how sexual assault law had changed or why and when he's appointed where do they put him right smack in the criminal courts about which he as he admitted the other week he knows absolutely nothing it's shocking
0: well, it certainly is. Now, I'm going a few minutes left because I, I want to touch on this. Gomeshi and, and Duffy are very recent trials. You devote a chapter in this book to the Paul Bernardo trial and, and everything uh, that, that went along with it because that still stands out, I think, to a lot of people. Uh, the, the plea deal for Carla Homolka still rankles just how that was all handled, and again, that that goes to the, to the whole system. So why does that case still stand out to you?
1: Well, partly because it was so... God awful. You know, uh, I mean, it was three months of my life and all of our lives. And I think nobody who covered it or was in that courtroom every day will ever forget it. I mean, it, it leaves its scars. But beyond mm-hmm. that, the lack of vigor that was uh, applied to the prosecution of Carla Homolka. Now, there were, in the beginning, there were reasons for it. People may remember that there were videotapes of the sexual assaults of the girls who were killed um, in this case, and that uh, the crown, when they made the the, the plea deal with Hamolka, didn't have benefit of the videotapes. But at some point during the course of the trial, Carla Hamolka arguably uh, lied about some of her evidence, and she could have been she could have been deemed to have broken her plea deal, and the government could have prosecuted her anew. Well, they didn't, and in fact her treatment in the courtroom was as victim. She was treated as a someone who was suffering from PTSD. She'd been, you know, in the grips of her cruel, uh, psychopathic husband, yada, yada, yada. And yet, when the time came to... For, for people, a, a colleague and friend of mine named Stephen Williams, to write books about the case, and he was very critical of the Hamoka plea deal and very critical of the way the government generally, the cozy bar, you know, like the same six people in Ontario, and I'm sure it's the same, exactly the same in Alberta, you know, kind of run the show and they point each other to various things, etc. Anyway, so the, the coziness of that plus the plea bargain. And instead of uh, prosecuting or chasing Carla Homolta vigorously, the government, the Ontario government, went after Stephen Williams, the author. And essentially, they went after him in a two-pronged attack. They charged him criminally with breaching the publication ban that was on some of the information in the case, and they sued him civilly. So they effectively bankrupted him and ruined him they also went after Paul Bernardo's first lawyer, a very nice man named Ken Murray, who had held on to the tapes. He got them because his client is an evil bastard who, yes. you know, had hidden in the middle a uh, potlight in a bathroom. And uh, he held on to them, intending to use them in cross-examination of Homolka, as she did just what he predicted she'd do, which is to say it wasn't me, it was my husband. And they prosecuted him, the government did, and they charged him even with possession of child pornography and distributing child pornography. Not because they ever believed for a New York minute that this very nice man would ever have done anything like that. But because, and that charge, those charges were dropped pretty quickly, but not before they ruined him. Not before they smeared his name all over the country as the bad guy in the thing. The bad guys in the story were Homolka and Bernardo, period. There were no other bad guys. So my, my, sort of my purpose in revisiting the Bernardo trial is A, because it was so awful and so interesting, and, and B, so typical because, you know, there were publication bans of various sorts on all kinds of information that probably could have been and should have been made public, and C, Because of the merciless way the Ontario government went after bit players in the story instead of the culprit.
0: Well, it's uh, quite a harrowing read. Uh, Life Sentence is the name of the book. Christy Blatchford, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much for having me. All
0: right. Take care. All the best. Christy Blatchford uh, reports for the National Post, her new book, Life Sentence. We're back with more right after this.
1: Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 12:30 on News Talk, 770 Calgary.